Let's get to it. (laughs) So I invite you to take your Bible and open to the Gospel of Matthew, the third chapter. Matthew chapter 3. Tonight we're going to think about a well-known passage of Scripture that in in the early chapters of Matthew that gives us the account of Jesus' baptism. Uh, by John the Baptist there in the Jordan River. And this is the event that kicked off Jesus' public ministry that within the course of uh, three years would culminate in his crucifixion and resurrection that you can find the account of on the other end of this gospel in the final chapters. And certainly the, the cross and resurrection are the climactic events of this gospel, as in all four of the gospels. So much so that uh, one, one biblical scholar coined the phrase that the gospels are really like passion narratives with extended introductions. Passion narratives with extended introductions. And, 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 and while there is a slight element of truth that, in that, in, in the sense that the cross and the resurrection are the climactic events. That, that kind of thinking, that these are passionaries with extended introductions, that it, 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 it could lead you wrongly to believe that all of Jesus' saving work for sinners is reserved for the last couple of chapters of the Gospels. It could lead you to think wrongly that while the early chapters of the, of the Gospels are interesting, and they have a lot to teach us, that Jesus really doesn't get down to the business of saving sinners until he goes to the cross. And I, I, I say that, that's a wrong way of thinking. And I, that is most certainly not to downplay the importance of the cross or the resurrection. I, the last time I had the privilege of opening God's Word with you in this pulpit, we were in the series, The Gospel According to Moses. And I had the task of opening to Leviticus 16 and talking to you at length about the Day of Atonement, for crying out loud. Uh, and we talked about how all of those sacrifices offered every year pointed forward to the once-for-all, perfect, forever sacrifice of Christ on behalf of sinners. So in a very real sense, the, 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 the cross and resurrection, indeed, they are the climactic events of these Gospels, but we don't need to, in, in saying that, we don't need to misunderstand the nature of all that comes before it in these Gospels, uh, as if they're just merely introductory words, right? Because it, it could lead you to miss the fact that everything in Jesus' life leading up to the cross, was also for us and for our salvation. And that every moment of his life was necessary for our salvation. And that every action he took from beginning to end was for us and for our salvation. Not merely to teach us, not merely to be an example to us, but to save us. Right? And I want us to see that truth in an early story. I want us to see that truth uh, in this passage tonight from Matthew chapter 3 in the account of Jesus' baptism 
in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And from this passage, I want us to think together about confident hope in a perfect Savior. Confident hope in a perfect Savior. I believe there is more in these verses than perhaps we often see at first glance. And so I just want to camp out a little bit here and marvel at the glory and the grace of Christ our Savior. So before we go any further, let's read the passage. So if you found Matthew 3 in your Bibles, follow along as as I read. We'll begin reading in verse 1, actually, and read the whole chapter for context. It's not a terribly long chapter. We'll focus on uh, verses 13 through 17, of course. But we'll begin reading in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, this is your, um, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient, necessary word every word of it, and we bow ourselves to it. I pray, I pray that you would give us minds to understand the truth, all the truth in what we just read. 
Don't just give us minds to understand it, but give us hearts to embrace it and love it, to love this truth. And give us wills to obey whatever it should lead us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach and to teach clearly and rightly. Give us all ears to hear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, we're not gonna, we read the whole chapter for context, but we're not gonna focus on the whole chapter, but really just that last part, the actual account of the baptism of, of Jesus in verses 13 through 17. And even then, we're actually gonna zoom in the closest on one particular verse that, he, that, he, that we see there, and that is verse 15. Look at that verse again with me for just a moment. Chapter three, verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Every word of that is rich. And that, that, that thought is at the, at the heart of everything that happens in this passage. Everything leading up to it, flowing out of it. And, 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 and it shows us how what happens here even is as much for us and for our salvation as would be the cross and the resurrection. There are three things that I want to draw out of this this beautiful passage as we think together. First, I want us to see how Jesus is our fitting representative. Our fitting representative. This passage gives us a beautiful reminder of who Christ is and, and, and why he was perfectly suited to be our Savior. He was our fitting representative. But secondly, I want us to see how in Christ we see our fulfilled righteousness. He very plainly says in this passage that he is coming to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? And, 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 and how is Matthew uh, showing us how Jesus did that? And then finally, at the conclusion of this passage, I, I think we see a picture of our future reward. The, the future reward of all who put their faith and hope in Christ. I have said this before, and, and it bears saying again and again, these aren't new truths. These aren't new truths. Um, the beauty of God's Word isn't that it is constantly presenting us a multitude of new truths. The beauty of God's Word is that it presents us the same truths in a multitude of ways. Right, So I just pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to see these old truths in, in a fresh new way and give us fresh encouragement to our, our faith and our assurance. So let's dig in and think first about how Matthew presents Jesus here as our fitting representative. Let's look at the text. What you may not be aware of if you're just dropping into the, the gospel at this point is that these are the first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. These are the very first words out of his mouth. As, as, as we read uh, the earlier part of the chapter for context, you know that, that John the Baptist is there in the Jordan baptizing repentant sinners and, re and at the same time rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their insincere show of repentance. And just about the time that John the Baptist is calling down fire and brimstone, on the unrepentant Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus comes down into the water, desiring baptism just like all others who had come. The irony, of course, of that juxtaposition is that while the Pharisees and the Sadducees had sin in, in, that, and, and were in need of repentance, which they refused, 
Jesus was coming for a baptism of repentance and had no sin of which to repent. That's the point we're going to see here. Why? Why? John seemed to see the irony because it says in verse 14 that he essentially had made up his mind to prevent the whole thing from happening. But it seemed backwards to him, as you can imagine. But that's when Jesus, for the first time in this gospel, speaks. And what does he say? Verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, without question, the most significant phrase in that sentence is fulfill all righteousness. That's the heart of it. But we'll get to that in just a minute. For now, I want to focus on him saying, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's, it's, it's fitting. And some translations say it's proper. And notice that he doesn't say, as many times as I've read this verse, it was a long time before I realized that Jesus does not say, it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. Does he? He says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Us who? He and John, they're the ones standing in the water. John, Jesus is including John the Baptist in some sense in what he's saying here. Now, as we'll see in just a minute, to really and truly fulfill all righteousness here in the way that Jesus is talking about and in the way that Matthew the gospel writer is trying to communicate to us, that is something that Jesus alone can do. And he does do. But there is a sense, if we want to take Jesus at his word here, in which Jesus includes John as a part of it. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So we need to ask the questions. If Jesus said it, let's ask the questions. In what way, what is fitting about Jesus to fulfill all righteousness? And what does he mean uh, about himself here when he includes himself in the us? You know, Jesus does include himself, so what does he mean? How, what, what, how is Jesus, what is fitting about Jesus to fulfill all righteousness? And secondarily, though, he said us. So what does he mean by including John the Baptist in this phrase? What part does he play? Let's think about it. Well, to answer the question about the fittingness of Jesus in this statement, um, we need to realize that the gospel of Matthew does not start here in chapter 3. Right? There's two chapters that preceded, that help us answer the question, what is fitting about Jesus to fulfill the righteousness that he says he's about to fulfill? And there's a lot we could say in answer to that question, what's fitting about Jesus, and we could spend a lot of time here. But for brevity's sake, you'll thank me later, I, I, I want to just make one observation about him from chapter 1 and another observation about him from chapter 2 that help us answer the question, what, what was fitting about Jesus to fulfill all righteousness? I think, it'll, I think it'll help us answer the question. Uh, and also, at the same time, go ahead and help us to understand John the Baptist's role. What do we learn about Jesus in Matthew 1? This is a very quick overview. What do we learn about Jesus in Matthew 1? Well, clearly, right off the bat, uh, screaming off the page at us, is we learn something about the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus. He was born in time and space. He was born of a, of a human mother, Mary. And so has a human nature like ours, made like us in every way, yet without sin, so the Scriptures say. 
but he was also conceived in her by the Holy Spirit of God. According to Matthew 1.20, and therefore, as Matthew 1.23 tells us, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was God with us. And so in Matthew 1, we learn that Christ is fitting to fulfill all righteousness because of his nature, or more specifically, his natures. His natures. Uh, It is fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness because he is God who took on human flesh, God who took on human nature, yet without sin. That's what we learn in Matthew chapter 1. But when you come to Matthew chapter 2, you're introduced to another reason why it might be fitting for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, and it's the heart of this first point. Not only because of, of who he is by nature, but because of the role he came to fulfill. The role he came to fulfill. And this was a little trickier to see, but I'm thinking specifically of Joseph and Mary fleeing with Jesus to Egypt when Herod was about to put all the children to and under to death. They were fleeing Herod's persecution. And when Herod died and the persecution was over, they were able to return home. But when they returned home, Matthew says in Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Out of Egypt I call my son. And he's actually quoting Hosea, the prophet. Hosea 11.1. 1. And if you read that chapter, God is speaking through the prophet Hosea and he's reflecting on the waywardness of his people Israel. He's, he's saying, I, 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 Israel, you are like my son and I brought you out of Egypt to be, out of slavery in Egypt. I brought you out that you might be my redeemed people, that you might be my joyfully, gladly obedient people, right? But what happened? They continually rebelled, and that's what Hosea is talking about. Now, now Matthew sees Jesus coming out of Egypt with his parents, and Matthew sees Jesus in that action of coming out of Egypt as the Son of God, you know, in, in, in Hosea, Israel was the Son. Now here, Jesus is the Son of God. He's coming out of Egypt. And Matthew sees Jesus sort of replaying in his own life the history of Israel. That's what he sees. And you, you'll see that all over the place in these early chapters in, in Matthew. Uh, that, that Jesus, like Israel, came out of Egypt. What, what happens... Uh, how did, when, when, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, what did they have to pass through to get out? They had to pass through the waters of the Red Sea. When Jesus comes out of Egypt in chapter 2, where's the first place he go in chapter 3? Into the waters of baptism. And when Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea, where did they go? Out into the wilderness. Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism into chapter 4, into the wilderness. How long was Israel in the, in the wilderness? For 40 years. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? For 40 days. And while they're out in the, in the wilderness, Moses comes, comes down with the law, with the word of God. But now Jesus comes in chapter 5 and says, you've heard it said, and he quotes Moses, but I say to you, Jesus in his own life is replaying the whole history of Israel. And it just keeps going. The point Jesus is replaying the history of Israel in his own life and actions, not just to show them how it should have been done, but to do 
what they should have done and to do it as a representative. Just as Adam represented all of those in him, so Jesus, the last Adam, represents all those in him. It's fitting for him. He is God in human flesh. Come as our representative. But he said it's fitting for us. He includes John in this thing somehow. Jesus looked at John, it's fitting for us. That teaches us something else about Jesus, that in that moment, as Jesus is in the waters of baptism, baptism for what? Repentance. He's identifying himself with sinners, though he himself was without sin. And, And in that act, he's fulfilling, he's fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied about him in Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. When Jesus stepped into the baptismal waters with John, and when he said it was fitting or proper for him to do what he was about to do, it was because he was the Messiah who was prophesied to come, God with us, to fulfill all righteousness as our representative. John's part would be to fulfill his prophesied role to be the forerunner of that Messiah, which would include baptizing Jesus in this moment. Confident hope in a perfect Savior. He's our fitting representative. You can have confidence in Jesus as a perfect Savior for you because everything he did, he was able to do because of who he was and who he is and because he was doing it as your representative, a fitting representative. But we can also have confident hope in him as our perfect Savior because as our fitting representative, he also came to be our fulfilled righteousness. I've already said that the most important phrase in verse 15 is that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. Now we need to think about what Jesus meant by it. Um, And not surprisingly, I believe that that this righteousness he came to fulfill means at at root two basic things. We've already seen he's our representative, so that's folded into this. To fulfill all righteousness means at least two things. A life of obedience in our place. A life of obedience as our representative. And secondly, a sacrificial death in our place. A sacrificial death as our representative. How do we arrive at that in this baptism? Well, think with me first about fulfilling righteousness through living a life of obedience in our place. Well, just as it was important to see what Matthew has told us in the chapters right before this one, don't don't think that Matthew 3 is the last chapter of Matthew either. Um, It's also important to see what comes right after it. The whole meaning of fulfill all righteousness can't be learned simply in the act of being baptized. Uh, that's when it starts. You know, that's, that's when it, it, it's, it commences in a sense. The meaning of it is, is fleshed out in, in the broader context, specifically the, the passage that comes right after this one. I've already alluded to it in chapter 4. Jesus comes uh, through his baptism and he goes out into the wilderness in chapter 4 to be tempted for 40 days. Recall, recall how all of this is replaying the history of Israel in his own life. He's in the wilderness for 40 days where they were there for 40 years. But the whole point is not just being there 
like Israel was there. But the whole point was to be obedient there while they were disobedient there. That's the whole point. And in fact, we don't have time to read this whole thing, but, but he, was, he was obeying the very scriptures that they rebelled against. Right? Citing Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, grumbling about their food. He, he, he cites Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as they did at the waters of Meribah. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord and, and, and your God and serve him only. Moses, they were breaking that one before Moses got down off the mountain. Jesus obeying these scriptures would be enough, but obeying them in clear display or clear replay of Israel's faithfulness shows that he was doing it in our place, doing it as a representative. He was doing himself what neither Israel, with all of their spiritual advantage, nor any other sinner in Adam ever could or ever did. He was doing it for us. He was fulfilling all righteousness through his obedience that began there in the baptismal waters, identifying with repentant sinners. But think also with me how his baptism, his baptism actually shows how he would fulfill all righteousness also by his Sacrificial death, not just an obedient life for us, but a sacrificial death for us. This is not hard to see from all the rest of Scripture, um, but it does take some digging to see a sacrificial death pictured in his baptism, so let's dig. <laughs> looking, looking back again at verse 15, that's been our primary text so far tonight. I want to take notice of a phrase that might seem to be initially insignificant uh, at first glance. He begins it this way. Let it be so now. Let it be so now. For thus, in this baptism, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now. Why? Why, why now? Jesus had lived his whole life in obscurity. Why not last year? Why not next year? Why now? Why this year? Why this particular time? Let it be so now. For thus, in this way, being baptized, come to fulfill all righteousness. Why all of a sudden now? Because he was 30 years old now. He was 30 years old now. He said, so what? Luke 3.23 tells us that he was 30 years old when he began his public ministry, and he began his public ministry with his baptism. So now, at 30 years old, it was fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. What are we getting at in all this? I believe this is all indicating that Jesus was not only commencing his public ministry um, in his baptism, but specifically commencing his service as our great high priest, as our great high priest in his baptism. In the Old Testament law, specifically in the book of Numbers, don't stop reading at Numbers in your, uh, New, Testament, in your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible. Some good nuggets there in, in Numbers. In Numbers chapter 4, verses 3 and 47, 
the law stipulates that priests could begin their service, the Levites could begin their service at 30 years old. And they could serve until they were 50. And so now that Jesus was 30, in fulfillment of the law, Jesus could begin his work as our great high priest. And not only that, but Numbers chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, when the priests began their priesthood at 30 years old, they went through a ceremonial washing in water, which Jesus was fulfilling in the waters of baptism. And so I believe when Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus, in this way, being baptized, not only am I 30 now, but the washing comes, he's indicating that his ministry as our great high priest was commencing. The job of a high priest, of course, was to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus, our great high priest, offered a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the people through the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest's enters the holy places every year with the blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It seems that in the baptism of Jesus, we see our fulfilled righteousness because it reveals publicly for the first time his obedient life in our behalf, that would be displayed in, in what comes right after it, his obedience in the wilderness as a representative of the people, but also because it commences his priesthood where he would offer the sacrifice of himself for the sins of the people to stand righteous before God. Confident hope in a perfect Savior. You can have confident hope in Jesus as a perfect Savior because not only did he Obey perfectly in your place to give you hope when you stumble and fall and you will and do stumble and fall. But he was already cut off and cursed in your place for sins through his sacrificial death given as your high priest before God. There's one last thing that we need to note very quickly and that is in this account of Jesus' baptism, not only do we see Jesus as our fitting representative and as our fulfilled righteousness, but we also see a glimpse of our future reward. Very quickly, look again at our passage in Matthew 3. We're going to actually get off of verse 15 now. What happened when Jesus came up out of the water having been baptized? Well, yes, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. What else? Heaven opened. Heaven opened. Look at verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I just want to leave you with this. You say, How is that a picture of our future reward? It simply says that the the heavens opened to him and the Spirit descended on him and he is the Father's Son with whom the Father is well pleased. What does that have to do with you or me? Exactly this. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear that by faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. We are in Him, with Him. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So Colossians chapter 3 says. And so it uses phrases all the time like, we died with Him. I have been crucified with Christ. Right? Or it'll say, we were raised with Him. Romans chapter 6. Paul says, or he says, he's his beloved son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Some, I'm just going to say, some translations, I'm not going to name any of them, just know it. You might have one. They just don't, they don't like the, the gender specificity of sons. So to say, you're all children of God, which is true. It is true. We're all children of God. But Scripture says, and God said through Paul, not merely are you children, you are sons, even if you're a girl. Because in that day, sons weren't just part of the family The son had the highest place of privilege. The son received the inheritance. You're all sons. We are the father's beloved because we're in Christ and are as beloved as Christ himself is beloved. But not only that, as the Holy Spirit descended on him, Like a dove, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Meaning when the heavens open to Him, the heavens open to you. Confident hope in a perfect Savior. In other words, you can have confident hope in Jesus as your perfect Savior because through repentance of your sins, And faith in Him. Wherever He goes, you go. What is our future reward? He's our future reward. What do you do with this? Well, everybody needs to respond in some way You should respond every time you hear the the Word of God preached. In some way, you should respond. In your heart, at the altar, respond in some way. 
What's the, what's the alternative? You hear the word of God and it moves you not in one way whatsoever? Every time you hear the word of God and you, and you don't respond, a spiritual callus builds up on your heart and you don't hear it as clearly the next time. So everybody should respond in some way, be it where you're sitting or whatever, whatever the Lord leads you to do. Clearly, as, we, as, as, as the last thing I said, all of these things are true for us. Christ is, is our fitting representative. He is our fulfilled righteousness. He is our future reward, but only for those who are in him. We're only in him through repentance of our sins and faith in his finished work. So if you're here tonight, and you've never repented of your sins, and you're certain that you've never consciously put your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and hope of eternal life, without question, that's how you should respond. But let's just say the vast majority of us here have already done that. Say, I've been a believer for a long time. How should I respond to this? Too often we, we look for our assurance in ourselves. You know, we, we, I, I look at my track record. I look, at, I, look at my, I look at my track record of obedience or disobedience. Sometimes I don't even look at anything that objective. I look at, I, 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 I stick my finger up and try to gauge my feelings. My feelings that are so fickle and wishy-washy. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Not you or not me. I don't always feel like a child of God. I don't always feel obedient. I'm not always obedient. But even as a believer... Your assurance does not fully and finally lie in how you measure up. Your, your assurance is, is found in another. Look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. He did not come as your representative. He did not fulfill all righteousness and, get, and guarantee your future reward so that you could constantly look at yourself. Look to him and give thanks.